Welcome, this is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 328 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Soyuz 11, the replacement crew, Dabrowski, Volkov, and Patsayev, part one. Continuing from the previous episode, the prime crew for Soyuz 11 has been grounded just two days before launch. The backup crew now takes over on June 5th, 1971. At the final meeting of the State Commission, the new crew that would actually fly the mission, Dobrovsky, Volkov, and Patsev, was announced to the journalist present. The cosmonauts were all seated in a line behind a long table with the former prime crew of Leonov, Kubasov, and Kaladin. The replacement crew looked serious almost anxious. According to Leonov, they even appeared to have been frightened by the sudden change in their schedule. The Brolsky's crew knew that they should have had more time to train, another month at least, to prepare themselves for the next visit to Salyut. Leonov's crew held their heads low, clenched their fingers, and appeared nervous. Behind them sat the Soyuz 10 crew, the tension in the air was oppressive. Kamanin introduced the replacement crew, and as he announced the names, the cosmonauts stood up. Dobrovsky briefly said that his crew was ready to conduct the assigned task. As the meeting continued, it became obvious that Leonov was very disappointed, and Kubasov felt especially guilty because his ailment meant neither of his crew members would be allowed to fly. Then there was a loud protest. Leonov and Kaladin defended their right to fly the mission, saying that they knew the station better and they had trained for longer, and the promotion of Volkov from the backup crew would not have complicated their task. However, the state commission had made its decision. The backup crew would fly. On the faces of the two crews, you could feel the tension, envy. Everything had happened unexpectedly and painfully. Culloden was more upset than the others. The anger was apparent on his face. Reportedly, Kubasov approached Chertok and apologized, saying, I believed I had only caught a cold, that it would pass in a week and nothing would be visible on the x-ray scan. No one could console him. The great irony is that the diagnosis of the physicians proved to be wrong. Later, a more detailed medical examination in Moscow showed him to be healthy. It was decided that he must have an allergy to the spray applied to the trees at Baikonur. Many years later, however, Kubasov revealed that the pollen from the trees flowering in the late season spring had initiated his allergy. What was certain was that the dark spot on his lung was not the onset of tuberculosis. Another irony is that the comprehensive medical screening failed to determine that Patsev had a chronic kidney inflammation. Thus, the incorrect diagnosis of tuberculosis symptoms on Kubasov's lung led to a healthy cosmonaut being grounded 
and one with a chronic medical problem being launched into space. Shortly after the conclusion of the State Commission meeting, Dabrowski, Volkov, and Patsayev gave their press conference. Sitting between Kamanin and the Soyuz 10 crew, they were now relaxed and replied to the questions enthusiastically. The journalist knew Volkov as a veteran, but Dabrowski and Patsayev were new. There were so many journalists with so many questions, but the Soviet space journalists knew that they were expected to ask only about the cosmonauts' lives, their backgrounds, their families, and stories about their training, not about the upcoming mission, the major task, and the planned experiments. Once the mission was underway, TASS would publish all that was necessary. The excited cosmonauts spoke willingly, often simultaneously. They jumped from topic to topic. They began by speaking about themselves, in particular about their childhood, their early years in the program, and their training. After half an hour, it was all over, and Volkov and Patsayev shared a cigarette offered by one of the journalists. Now, let's meet the gallant crew of Soyuz 11. First, the mission commander, Yorgi Dabrowski. His colleagues said he was born to fly. His flying biography includes the phrase, he flies calmly. This is a very rare description to hear, even when speaking of the best pilots. Dabrowski was blonde, tall, broad-shouldered, and tough. He was kind-hearted and had a contagious belly laugh. At the Air Force School, his friends nicknamed him Odessa, and he was proud of it. But life was hard for Dabrowski. He was born on June 1, 1928, in Odessa, Ukraine, on the coast of the Black Sea. His family was Russian and lived in the Mills neighborhood. His nickname was Zora, a Russian deviation of the Greek word for George. Zora's father was a member of the Soviet counterintelligence. When Zora was only two years old, his father left home and never returned, so he was raised by his mother. Zora described his mother as a marvelous woman. She represented an ideal to him. She faced hardship without a husband, and she worked to support her family, firstly in a shop, then in a cannon factory. No matter how tough her life was, Zora never saw her complain, be sad, in a bad mood, or in despair. The Second World War had a deep impact on Dabrowski's life. He was 13 years old when it began for the Soviet Union. In the autumn of 1941, after 73 days of defending the city of Odessa, the soldiers of the Red Army and the sailors of the Black Sea Fleet were forced to abandon their positions and evacuate. In the city, only the partisan cells remained to continue to offer resistance. Zora, who had just finished sixth grade, remembered for the rest of his life the day that the German invaders entered the town in which he had been born. He wanted so much to participate in the resistance, and soon he was in action, 
In his first act of sabotage, he and one of his friends punctured the tires of military trucks. Then he became an enthusiastic member of the underground. He began by providing information on the movements of the enemy forces and by carrying ammunition. One night, he and a friend attacked a German soldier. However, knowing that the SS officers were the cruelest, he yearned to kill at least one of them. In February of 1944, his neighbor gave him a Beretta revolver. He was so proud, but on setting out for his next action, he was stopped near his home, and the revolver that he carried was found. At the local headquarters of the SS, he was beaten by a rubber club and subjected to electric shock torture. He lost consciousness several times. His fingers were broken, but he refused to give any information. For possessing a revolver, he received a 25-year sentence of hard labor. But on March 19th, after less than a month in prison, Zora managed to escape. Three weeks later, the Red Army liberated Odessa. Zora tried to join the Red Army, but was refused because he was not yet 16. After the war, with a strong sense of love for the sea, he applied to enter the Odessa Nautical School, but his application was submitted too late and he was unsuccessful. Then, a friend suggested the recently opened Odessa Special Air Force School, observing that there he would have the new uniform and, more importantly, good food. Zora, therefore, turned to his second love, the sky, and decided to enroll at the Air Force School. As an 18-year-old student there, Zora flew solo for the first time. Although still in love with the sea, on discovering the beauty of the blue heavens, he knew that the sky would be his life. On graduating in 1946, he had no difficulty in enrolling at the famous Chugayev Military School for Air Force Pilots. He achieved maximum scores for his flying skills, but was not very strong on the theory side. In November 1950, Zora graduated from Chugayev as a fighter pilot of the Navy and was posted to the Sevastopol Aviation Regiment in the Donbass region, where he met many experienced World War II pilots now working as instructors. Zora had the opportunity to fly a variety of MiG, Yak, and Lavashkin planes in all weather conditions, and often his inner peace and cool thinking enabled him to overcome difficulties. In contrast to many other pilots, he liked parachute jumping, making 111 jumps in total. In fact, when he joined the cosmonaut group, he was appointed as an instructor for parachuting. In October 1952, soon after finishing studies at the Evening University of Marxism-Leninism, he was posted to East Germany to defend the border. In January 1955, he became a deputy squadron commander responsible for political work, and soon thereafter, at the age of 27, he was promoted to the rank of captain. In the autumn of 1956, he was posted to the town of Valga in Estonia, located by the Baltic Sea. There, his personal life began to blossom. 
On a visit to a local dance club, he met Ludmila Stebliova, a mathematician. They soon fell in love and were married in 1957. Just two years later, Ludmila gave birth to Zora's first child, a daughter named Marina. With his family, Zora was stable, sensitive, and attentive. Recalling this period, Ludmila said that although he could come home exhausted, he was always ready to play with his dear daughter. He was never violent, never rude, and never insulted her. His daughter, Marina, had many good memories of her father. She said, For me, my father was the closest friend in my life. He always supported me. He used to tell everyone that he had the most beautiful daughter, that she was an excellent student, that she swam expertly, and that she was a remarkable dancer. When saying these things, he would look at me with a big smile, and naturally, I would set out to learn something else in order to gain additional praise. Zora was now working as a pilot and commander teacher, and he began to appreciate that he was weak on the theory side. He decided to enroll at the Military Aeronautic Academy for command and navigation staff of the Red Army Air Force. In July 1961, he graduated from the academy, specializing in command headquarters for the Military Air Force. But just three months before Zora graduated from the academy, Yuri Gagarin became the first man to orbit the Earth. And shortly after Zora's graduation, German Titov spent an entire day in space. Across the Soviet Union, young pilots began to talk of making space flights. But Zora, who was already 33 years old, assumed that space was a game for the young. After all, he was already seven years older than Titov. But one day in January of 1962, his squadron commander asked how he felt about flying in space. He was surprised at first, but after thinking about it and consulting his wife, Zora wrote to his commander, concluding the letter as follows, quote, I am asking for your permission to enroll in the cosmonaut school. To that, I wish to dedicate all my knowledge and, if necessary, my life. End quote. In January of 1963, Zora was selected as a member of the Air Force's second group of cosmonauts. This comprised 15 military pilots, navigators, and engineers of the Strategic Rocket Forces and included Shadilov and Filipchenko. Zora moved with his family to Zivyordsny to begin training at the Cosmonaut Training Center. It was a complex program of theory classes, physical training, centrifuge work, parachuting, and flying MiG-15, MiG-21, TU-104, and IL-14 aircraft. In the altitude chamber, he experienced an air pressure reduced to that at a height of 5 kilometers. There was also a chamber that was heated to a temperature exceeding 50 degrees C, and during a single session, Zora shed several kilograms. One of the most difficult parts of the training for the majority of the cosmonauts was an ordeal known as the Chamber of Silence. Zora first encountered it in February 1964, 
He entered the chamber with his body covered with biosensors and spent the next 10 days alone in total silence reading books on astronomy, mathematics, and the German language. Shatiloff recalled those days, saying, Zora stood apart from the others by his extraordinary intensity. He prepared for every job deliberately, peacefully, methodically, never in a hurry, always with responsibility. As a great pilot, he learned the space techniques perfectly. He was extremely strict with himself. I remember in January 1963, when we, the new cosmonauts, met in Moscow prior to going to Zavodzny, and someone suggested a glass of wine to toast the start of this new phase of our lives. But Zora refused. At that time, we did not appreciate his reaction, but later we realized that he was not a pretender. He soon became a favorite of the entire cosmonaut group. We trusted him and loved him because of his modesty as well as his principles. The five women who entered cosmonaut training in the spring of 1962, about seven months before the second group arrived, also have fond memories of Zora. Most of the first group of cosmonauts were annoyed to see women in the simulator. At that time, only two Soviet cosmonauts had flown in space, and it was felt that there were a great many issues to be resolved before women could be allowed to fly. But at the heart of the matter was the fact that women represented competition for flights. The women's situation dramatically changed when the second group of men arrived. Whereas the young squadron pilots had made it very clear that they did not approve of the women, the new men, being generally older, more serious, more experienced, of higher rank, and of superior technical knowledge, both respected the women and treated them as colleagues. Zora especially got along well with the women. In breaks between training sessions during the long hot summer, Zora would buy them all ice creams. From the moment he joined the ranks of the cosmonauts in January 1963 until he became the Soyuz 11 commander in June of 1971, his life was a succession of exciting events. The general training took precisely two years. It was the hardest thing he ever had to do. Then, in September of 1966, Kamanin moved him to the group of seven military cosmonauts to train for the L-1 circumlunar missions. However, even before they could finish the theory of flying to the moon and the details of the L-1 spacecraft, they were joined by members of the OKB-1's first group of cosmonaut engineers. This joint group was led by Alexei Leonov. It was during this period that the Dabrowski family gained its second child, another daughter, Natalia. In early 1968, Kamanin and Mission chose the first four crews from the 14 cosmonauts in training for the L-1 spacecraft. Zora was given command of the fourth crew, with Yorgi Greco as his flight engineer. But in September 1968, it was decided that only the first three crews would be needed. For several months, Zora worked with the group in training for the Almaz military space station. But then he was made commander of the third backup crew for the Soyuz 4 and 5 docking mission. And between 
August and December 1968, he trained to fly the active spacecraft. Then, in May of 1969, after Soyuz 4 and 5 had achieved this goal, he joined the group of six cosmonauts on the project, which was to test in Earth orbit techniques required to rendezvous and dock in lunar orbit without the assistance of the Earth. This was preparatory work for the N1L3 lunar landing missions. Pairs of Soyuz spacecraft were to test the L3 docking system, which was known as contact. Four two-man crews trained, and Zora was assigned to a backup crew. But the failures of the N1 rocket severely diminished the prospects for the L3 project and reduced the need for the contact docking system test missions. However, the era of the space station was beginning, and in May 1970, Kamanin, knowing that Zora's training had focused on rendezvous and docking, nominated him to command the 4th Salyut crew. From September 1970 to mid-February 1971, he trained for this mission. But then there was a problem with one of the other cosmonauts, and Zora was given command of the third crew. Zora was expected to fly the first mission to Salyut 2, along with Volkov and Pat Saev. But the failure of Soyuz 10 and the illness of Kubasov led to Dubrovsky being selected to command Soyuz 11. On the night before launch, he was asked, Are you excited, Yorgi? He replied, Yes, I am. All the time I think only of the launch, the flight, and the experiments. We have prepared for every anomalous situation. But to be honest, I am as excited as if I were about to approach a terrible enemy. Space does not forgive mistakes. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 328 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Soyuz 11, The Replacement Crew, Dubrovsky, Volkov, and Pat Saev, Part 1. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure bringing it to you. This is the last episode of 2019. There will not be an encore episode next week as I am taking the week of Christmas off. Our next episode will be released January 2nd, 2020. It will be a longer episode because we are going to the every other week release schedule. In the meantime, if you're looking for old episodes, the first 156 are available on the Archive Podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on all podcatchers. Well, as you can expect, the Prime crew was awfully disappointed about not getting to fly. 
but I really didn't expect that they would erupt in front of the state commission, (laughs) but they did. These trips to space were very rare, and I guess they felt they were missing out on a great opportunity. But sometimes what seems really bad turns out not to be as bad as you might have thought at first. Was it surprising that some of the cosmonauts were smokers? Well, what can I say? It was a different time. Also of note, Dabrowski was really into Marxism and Leninism, and he actually enjoyed being the political officer. But wow, did he have a tough childhood, enduring siege, occupation, and torture. He was a very tough individual, and we will introduce the rest of the crew next week. Okay, it continues to be thank you donor bonus time of the year. All donors that have given $100 or more this year and have not received a 3-inch in diameter logo magnet, please email me, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell me your address, and I'll send one out. Everyone who has contributed $50 or more this year, send me your address, and I will mail you a Rev1 SRH logo sticker. And any level of donor can send $2 for an SRH logo sticker. That is below cost. Just go to the homepage, srh.com, click on the orange donate button, and make a $2 donation. Put your address in the donation comments. I look forward to hearing from you. All these offers end on December 31st, 2019. Okay, I want to remind everyone that if you have enjoyed the podcast delivered weekly without commercial interruption this past year, it is still not too late to become a donor. And it is the best time of the year to get two longevity emojis next to your name within a period of a few weeks. Simply make a donation now or sign up for Patreon now and receive a new emoji and make a donation in January or stay signed up for Patreon and receive another emoji. This is called the Emoji Maneuver. Our main goal is to reach uh, 600 contributors by the end of the year, and so far we have reached 467, so we are 133 short. That's going to be tough to make before December 31st. We usually have a lot of donations come in in the last two weeks before the end of the year. But that is uh, really tough. Maybe, just maybe, we can make uh, the reduced goal of 500. Our Patreon goal is even harder. We are at 243 donors with a goal of reaching 300 by the end of the year. Maybe we can make 250. If you are enjoying the over 327 episodes provided here and are financially able, please help us reach our goal. To contribute, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and click on the orange donate button on the Patreon link. Over the past week, we had several new contributions and increases. I want to recognize Matthew F. from Tennessee, who sent in another donation and moved to the Orion level. James M. from Illinois sent in another donation and moved to the Orion level. David D. donated at the Salyut Skylab level. Tom F. from Australia donated at the Mercury level and earned a rocket emoji. Paul F. donated at the Mercury level. Felix K. donated at the Mercury level. Christian B. from Germany donated at the Mercury level. Donald A. donated at the Mercury level and earned a moon emoji. 
Ben K. donated at the Mercury level. Chris H. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Orion level. Muriel L. increased her pledge on Patreon to the Soyuz level. And Paul A. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Soyuz level. Thank you for supporting the podcast. Now here's Mrs. SRH with the weekly donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Happy holidays, everyone. It is my pleasure to announce this week's winner of the SRH logo magnet. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Patrick Herbert. Patrick Herbert, if you would email us, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell us your address, we will mail this out to you. Thank you to all 467 of you who have contributed thus far in 2019. Okay, folks, that's all we have for this week and this year. I'll try to have episode 329 posted by Thursday, January 2nd. Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year.